One quick correction of sorts. Uh, I grew up Southern Baptist, and we did use biscuits and gravy for communion. (laughs) I'm kidding. Well, last week, good morning, we finally hit on a spiritual discipline that can really and literally cost us something, and that is the discipline of stewardship. As Joshua mentioned, stewardship isn't only about money. God calls us to be wise managers of all of our resources. We're called to be generous with our time, with our skills, with our gifts, and our experiences. But at the same time, you can't honestly talk about stewardship and sidestep the issue of finances. Stewardship of our material wealth is how we put our money where our mouth is when it comes to worship and obedience. And while the practice of stewardship may not always come naturally to us, it's one of the many disciplines, one of the many tools that God uses to grow us in godliness. But today we turn our attention to another particularly challenging spiritual discipline. If stewardship has the potential to make us financially uncomfortable then today's discipline has the potential to make us physically uncomfortable. If talk of stewardship makes us want to groan, then today's discipline can make our stomachs growl. By now, you've likely figured out what that discipline is. It's fasting. Donald Whitney calls fasting the most misunderstood spiritual discipline. He adds... Few disciplines go so radically against the flesh and the mainstream culture as this one. Now, why in the world would someone voluntarily give up something as essential to our survival as food? What does scripture tell us about fasting? When should we do it? How should we do it? For that, open up to Genesis chapter 2. Feel free to use our Bibles here to follow along if you didn't bring one. We will be jumping from passage to passage today, so get ready to turn pages or watch on the screen. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given to us. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Thank you that we made it through the winter storm this past week, that Most of us, for the most part, are pretty well dug out and going on about life. Uh, Lord, we ask that you continue to be with us as winter starts to come to a close, and we look forward to spring and new life and new creation. Lord, thank you for the new life that you give us in Christ. Uh, Thank you for the new life that you gave Christ himself after his death. Uh, Thank you that in the same way that Christ rose from the dead, You've given us new life in a very real sense now by your spirit, by your grace. And even more than that, we look forward to new life in eternity with brothers and sisters in Christ, worshiping you forever. Thank you for who Christ is and what Christ has done. And thank you that we're here together in this room, in this place, in this time because of Christ. So, Lord, I pray that our worship would be honoring to you honoring to your son. Thank you that we can call you our father, can call you our Lord. Thanks to the body and blood of Jesus. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, first things first, 
Food is good. I know we're not a very interactive church when it comes to preaching, but I thought I would get an amen with that one. (laughs) Food is good. We read in Genesis 2, verse 9, and in verse 16, that God provided Adam and Eve with plenty of food in the Garden of Eden. Which, when you think about it, makes their sin of eating from the only forbidden tree in the entire garden that much more egregious. Adam and Eve didn't sin because they were hungry. God gave them food. God himself fed the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness after slavery in Egypt. Exodus 16 tells us of how God miraculously provided both bread and meat from heaven for his people. One of the passages we read last week was Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. We'll read it again today. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Food is good. Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to ask God for our daily bread, to trust him For something as basic to our survival as food. And in Revelation 19, the image that John gets of God's ultimate victory over sin, death, and Satan is an image of a feast. Food is a wonderful gift from God. Even before sin entered the world, humanity was designed to need, run on, and enjoy Food. So then, why would we voluntarily give it up? Most definitions of fasting go something like this. Fasting is the act of abstaining from food for spiritual reasons. Abstaining from food for spiritual reasons. So what are those spiritual reasons for followers of Christ? Well, the dominant biblical reason for fasting is grief. When you think about it, this comes naturally to us, to a degree. It's completely normal to lose your appetite when you're mourning some great loss. Just this past week, we had a family member mourning the loss of a relationship. And one of the first things she told my wife when she called her was that she hadn't eaten anything in days. In the Old Testament, fasting was sometimes called afflicting the soul. I think we've all been there before. When we are grieving, when our souls are afflicted, we may find ourselves abstaining from food. After a horrific tragedy and embarrassment in Judges 20 verse 26, the nation of Israel weeps and fasts over what's happened. In Psalm 35, verses 13 and 14, we see King David fasting as he mourns and prays for the sick. Grief is the dominant context of fasting in the pages of Scripture. But that brings us to another spiritual reason for fasting, and it's prayer. A great example of this comes from the book of Esther. 
In Esther chapter 4, Esther, in the midst of a desperate life or death attempt to save the Jews from genocide, asks that people pray and fast on her behalf. Now, we should be careful not to treat fasting as though it's an extra measure to try and manipulate God to our desires as we pray. That gets into a bigger conversation about our theology of prayer. Prayer is not our way of twisting God's arm into doing what we want him to do. But fasting is one way that we express the earnestness of our prayers before God. So fasting and prayer often go together. A third spiritual reason to fast is for the sake of repentance. One of the only strictly set fasts in the entire Old Testament came on the Day of Atonement. That was the one day per year that God's people would collectively repent of their sin on a national scale. And in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, God himself calls Israel to repent and to do so with fasting. April 30th, 1863 was declared a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer by President Abraham Lincoln. Why? Lincoln wrote, It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions and humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. And to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history, that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. It's hard to imagine a president from either party saying something like that in our day and age. But fasting and repentance go hand in hand. And a fourth spiritual reason to fast is for the sake of discernment. There's evidence in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, that the early church incorporated fasting into their decision-making process when they were appointing elders and local congregations. They were looking for guidance, looking for clarity, and they fasted. Now, is fasting a silver bullet solution to all of our problems? Of course not. But it might help us more narrowly focus our minds on how to best obey God in the time and place that he's put us. It might help us better discern how to make a good decision when we're in a situation that has no one obvious answer. So clearly fasting was not as strange to people of the Old and New Testaments as it is to us. Grief. Prayer, repentance, discernment would have all been appropriate times to fast. Nobody would have batted an eye at the idea in the pages of Scripture. But what about fasting as a regular spiritual discipline for people like us in a time like ours? What about fasting, not just as an occasional situational activity, that we turn to in an emergency, but really, truly doing it consistently. 
Is there any biblical basis for purposely engaging in fasting for the sake of growing in godliness? Well, for that, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, starting in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says there, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In verses 2 through 4, Jesus talks about giving. In verses 5 through 15, he talks about praying. And then we read in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. That first verse that we read, verse 1, is the big idea of this entire passage. Jesus' disciples are not to give, pray, or fast. Three timeless, almost universal religious practices in order to be seen by others. Simply put, don't be loud about your obedience to God. Don't seek worldly praise for your piety. If you do, you may very well get rewarded in this life. But you may forfeit an even better reward in the next life. For fasting specifically, this means Jesus' disciples do not draw attention to our hunger. We don't exaggerate our sacrifice for the sake of admiration, applause, or likes. We don't make ourselves out to be martyrs. The Pharisee of Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18 is a cautionary tale concerning this. That man makes sure that everyone in the temple knows about his regular fasting. And you know, those people might have been impressed But Jesus says that that Pharisee didn't go home justified before God. He was fasting for the wrong reason. Fasting for the wrong person. Now turn to Matthew chapter 9. We see fasting come up yet again. The mouth of Jesus. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So this passage gets at what we said earlier, that grief is the primary biblical context for fasting. 
So when Jesus is asked why his disciples weren't fasting, Jesus' response is simple. It's not the right time. People don't mourn during a wedding. At least we're not supposed to. We celebrate. Grief at a wedding is as inappropriate as an old patch on a new shirt or new wine in old wineskins. It's simply out of place. In the same way, if fasting is usually associated with grief, then that was not the time for Jesus' disciples to fast. Why? Because Jesus was still with them. Jesus' presence was a time of joy for his disciples, not a time for mourning. So you put it together, and both of these passages help us better understand something about this spiritual discipline. In Matthew 6, Jesus addresses how not to fast. He's mainly concerned with our motivation, our attitude. And in Matthew 9, Jesus addresses when to do it. He reaffirms that important connection between fasting and grief. But the question remains, what do these two passages teach us about practicing this spiritual discipline on a consistent basis? Well, simply put, Jesus assumes, and we might even say that Jesus expects, that a time will come when his disciples will fast. I mean, think about it. If Jesus did not expect his disciples to fast, then he wouldn't have given us instructions on how not to do it. Surely none of us would suggest that Jesus no longer expects his followers to give or to pray. The two practices addressed right next to fasting in Matthew 6. So if we still do those two things as followers of Christ, then why would we ignore the third? And if Jesus did not expect his disciples to fast, then why would he say that after he's gone, when the bridegroom is taken away, that then his disciples will fast? That time is now. Jesus has died. He's risen. He's ascended. He's not with us right now in the same way that he was with his disciples in Matthew 9. So until Jesus returns, fasting is one practice that we might be wise to incorporate into our lives as people who represent Christ on earth until he comes. So we now have a bird's eye view of what fasting is why we might do it, and when we might do it. But practically speaking, how do we do it? Pastor David Mathis gives some helpful tips. And the first one is this. Start small. Start small. If you've never fasted before, don't bite off more than you can chew. Pun intended. Start with one meal. Start small. 
Second, have a plan. As we discussed, fasting is not abstaining from food just for the heck of it. It's for spiritual reasons, like the ones that we laid out this morning. Mathis writes that without a purpose and a plan, it's not Christian fasting. It's just going hungry. Have a purpose. Have a plan for it. Third, consider how your practice of fasting might affect others. If there are other people around you who depend on you for food, don't forget about them. It might sound silly, but really it's a good principle to keep in mind with all of these Christian spiritual disciplines we've been talking about. Don't let fasting or any other discipline get in the way of your responsibility to love your neighbor. Think about the people around you. Fourth tip is to try different kinds of fasts. Daniel and his friends are a good example. In the book of Daniel, they did not fast entirely. They still ate vegetables and drank water. But they refused to eat the king's food or drink his wine, not wanting to compromise their faithfulness to God. You can fast from some food, but not all food. You can fast alone or with family or with friends or with fellow believers. Diversify your fasting. Try different kinds of ways to do it. And on a related note, consider fasting from something other than food. This can be especially helpful for those who, for legitimate health purposes, cannot or should not abstain from food. I have no doubt that fasting from something other than food, whether it be technology in general, social media in particular, entertainment, shopping, or whatever other idol might occasionally compete for our attention, fasting from those things can be spiritually helpful to us. And finally, focus your mind on Christ. Fasting is not meant to be a form of self-punishment. It's meant to help us fix our minds on something or someone even more important than food. For all kinds of unfortunate reasons, this spiritual discipline has often been misunderstood, maligned, and neglected. But if we do it well, if we do it in the ways that God has laid out for us in Scripture... It can be a beneficial tool for growing us in godliness. Growing us in our dependence upon God more than anyone or anything else. So scripture clearly makes a case for fasting. But so do the saints who came before us. Augustine once encouraged his readers to fast, quote, Because sometimes it is necessary to check the delight of the flesh in respect to licit pleasures in order to keep it from yielding to illicit joys. In other words, if we can learn self-control with good things, we're more likely to be able to resist bad things. Martin Luther, a man who had no patience for vain religious exercises, Acknowledged that fasting could be helpful for both practical and spiritual purposes. 
John Calvin encouraged fasting so that believers could, quote, render themselves more eager and more unencumbered for prayer. Andrew Murray, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, all made similar arguments. If all of these past spiritual giants spanning some 2,000 years across the entire spectrum of theological stances, if they all encourage fasting, then we would be wise to listen to them. Many scientists and health experts are starting to recognize the benefits of intermittent fasting. It's kind of becoming a thing. As it turns out, maybe God was on to something, as he often is. Look at Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We read there. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus fasted as he faced down Satan in the wilderness. Maybe Satan had wagered that a tired, isolated, and hungry Jesus would be especially vulnerable to temptation. With any of us, that would be a pretty good bet. But Jesus is different. Jesus didn't sin. Even when Satan used Jesus' hunger against him, which was very real because Jesus is fully man. Jesus knew that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus lived that out all the way to the cross, qualifying himself to be our great high priest and our sacrificial lamb. In John 6, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. As long as we have him, we have everything we need in eternity. So for now, it may do us some good to occasionally give up our usual bread for the sake of growing in godliness. It may not hurt us to be a little bit hungry every once in a while. If it helps us remember that God alone can sustain us in eternity. And if it reminds us of who and what it is that we really, truly hunger for. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the opportunity to examine these disciplines the ones that are relatively tame and predictable and maybe we've already put into practice, but also the ones that are a little bit out there in our minds, that are genuinely challenging, genuinely different, the kinds that would be real difficulties for us. Thank you even for these disciplines, like the discipline of fasting. And I pray that even with all the arguments that we've laid out today of 
how and why and when fasting might be appropriate. If there's that part of us that still just isn't crazy about the idea, which I think we can all totally understand. Help us trust you that you know what's good for us. You know what's best for us. And you don't call us to do anything that doesn't ultimately benefit us and glorify you as your children. So, Lord, to some degree, as we look at these disciplines and think about whether or not we want to adopt them and put them into practice in our own lives, help us trust that you know what's best for us and that you wouldn't call us to do these things if they weren't beneficial for our godliness. So, Lord, I pray that we would take your word seriously, not just on the parts that we're comfortable with, but the parts that we're uncomfortable with, that we would obey you, follow you, and trust you. And, Lord, thank you that because of who Christ is, because of what Christ has done, because he practiced all of these things perfectly in a way that we don't, Thank you that because of Christ, these practices that we implement actually do have value and actually do have importance. That you've given us your spirit so that we can actually do the things you've called us to do and be the people you've called us to be. So, Lord, again, thank you for these disciplines. Thank you for the opportunity to study them. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who lived them all out perfectly. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.